0: You're not already turned there. I invite you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and I will invite you to stand as I read for you the first four verses of this second letter of Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. I don't know about you. I I read the opening lines of this letter, and I think, who writes like that anymore? We ought to write perhaps more like that because the whole focus here is upon God. The, the the centrality of who Jesus is in our salvation, as we delve into the meat of this letter of Second Peter, let me remind you of the key text that I would offer you, or the text that I would offer you as the key text, and that is Second Peter three eighteen. One that I think you should have memorized. If you don't, you will by the end of this series, I'm sure. And that is this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. If you were asked the question, what is the key command there? You would have to say it's to grow. Believers are commanded to grow. It means to increase and to abound in two things noted in this particular key verse, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as well as in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I started thinking about that. It's a lot easier for me to consider what it means to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that seems very concrete. I can, I can have a list of things that I can learn, and I can know if I've learned them. I can, I can stand on those things. I can recite those things. You can give me a test on things concerning the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ, who he is as a person, and what it is he has accomplished. It seems to me a little harder concept to consider what it means to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. That appears to be a little more abstract. How do you measure if you're growing in the grace of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to grow in grace? What does that look like? Well, remember that the grace of God is not only a determined state of mind on the part of God to show sinners his unmerited favor, his, his unearned favor, but we've been noting that grace is a power, that somehow God is with grace empowers us and enables us to obey his commands. You will not, cannot obey God apart from the grace of God at work in you. And so all the need to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. If we are indeed saved by grace, as Ephesians 2, eight reminds us, we know that that's through an unearned, unmerited act of God We also know that we are working out our salvation, that is, we are striving to become more and more like Christ. We call that sanctified or sanctification, set apart, that when we strive to become more and more like Jesus, that cannot be merely an act of our own self-will. I don't get up in the morning and say, I will, in my power, be more like Jesus. I cannot do it, nor can you. We need the grace of God daily to empower us to become more and more like Christ just as no one is saved apart from grace no one is sanctified apart from grace this concept of grace as an enabling power is offered to us in many places in the new testament and i want to remind you hopefully excite you about this but in 1 peter chapter 4 verses 10 and 11 we find this idea And note what it says there, 1 Peter 4, verse 10. It says, as each one, let me just stop there. If you are a believer in Christ, this speaks to you. This is every believer, as each one has received a special gift. I wish it hadn't translated it that way. The term there is spiritual gift. It is a a charisma. It is something of grace. It's a a grace gift would be the way to describe it, okay? So as each one has received a grace gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards. Notice what it says here, of the manifold, whatever that means, right? the multifaceted many-faced faces of the grace of God why does God give each one a gift a grace gift to manifest the splendor and the wonder and the infinite nature of his own grace we come to understand grace as we see it being exercised in and through the life of one another And then he gives an example in verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And then he says, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving in his own strength and what he has mustered up within himself. No, it is in the strength which God supplies. Beloved, we do not serve. In fact, you cannot serve in your own power alone. You serve in the grace, the power of God, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, each one of you, if you are in Christ, have a spiritual gift. You are to employ it. It is to be exercised to help others in the church and put on display. Why do I exercise the spiritual gift of preaching and teaching? To put on display not myself, but the glory and grace of God. When you use this gift, it is only effective According to verse 11, when it's empowered by the strength which God supplies, why? So that no one will be able to boast, that God receives the glory, God receives the honor, God receives the praise. It ought to be the recognition that God is at work in us and through us, ultimately that is what Philippians two thirteen says, does it not? We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Well, second uh, Peter and second Peter is writing to believers to stimulate them on to growing in this understanding and practice of the grace of God. A grace that I submit to you means pursuing godliness. I ask the question. How do you measure growing in grace? I can can understand the idea of growing in knowledge, but how do we grasp what it means to grow in grace? Let me give you a very simple test. Are you obeying God? Your obedience and the increased obedience of your life becomes the measure by which you know the grace of God, the power of God's grace is at work in you. Having introduced himself and provided a brief testimony of his relationship to Christ in those opening words of verse one, as we noted last week, the remainder of verse one and on down to verse four offers to us four gifts granted to us given freely to us by God's grace to impart God's grace in our lives so that we would be increasingly enabled to serve him. This morning, we will consider the first two of these gifts. You've noticed them up there, the gift of faith, and the second one will be the gift of grace and peace, and we'll consider those this morning starting with the gift of faith. I want to say that as I was digging into these opening verses I became overwhelmed with how much theology Peter packs in these words. It is so easy for us, it's easy for me to read these verses and just think, okay, I know what we're talking about. But as you begin to unfold these verses, you come to see that Peter Knew exactly what he wanted to say. Obviously, the Lord God knew exactly what he wanted to communicate through Peter concerning the gift of faith in Christ. We read at the end of verse 1 to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Hang on to your hats. Here, Peter identifies the recipients of his letters. Who, who, is, who, who is the audience? Well, they are believers. He identifies them to us as those who have received what? A faith. The first question that you ought to ask yourself is, have I received Faith. We need to define that, and we will, but that's what Peter says is the uh, target audience. Those would refer to those scattered believers and persecuted believers that Peter has already addressed in his first letter, and you can note that in 1 Peter 1.1, those who lived in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Peter is writing to instruct and encourage believers to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. But Peter goes on to indicate that what sets these people apart, we should be able to have our first point there. There we go. It is because of something that they have, and I want you to note the action here, the verb, it's something they have received. They have received something. They haven't earned it. They didn't go out and pursue it. They received it. They have a received faith. Peter's original readers would have picked up on something that I believe is easily missed for us in our English translations. The word for received here is not the typical Greek word that's used for the idea of of, uh, taking hold of something that's been offered to you. That's not the word that's being used. The more generally used word for received in the New Testament speaks of taking hold of that of something that you see or something that you expect. If I order an item from Amazon, I expect to receive it. I paid for it. I have every right to it because, well, I'm the one that initiated that whole process. You could even look at, if you want to tone it down, and speak of receiving a birthday gift. You can say, well, you don't deserve a birthday gift. Well, that's true, but you think about a birthday gift, you kind of have the thought that somebody might give you something, and so you sort of have that, that expectation that you're going to receive. I know why it's being given to me. I may not deserve it, but I get it because, well, it's my birthday. The word that Peter uses, though, literally means to obtain or determine by lots. To obtain or determine by lots. It originally carried the idea of receiving something by chance, or by the luck of the draw, okay? It it is used only four times in the New Testament. One of those times is in John 19.24. You say, what's going on in John 19.24? Well, the soldiers had put Jesus up on the cross, and they noticed that he had a one-piece tunic, which was quite valuable. And so what did they do? It says in John 19.24 that they cast lots to determine who would be lucky enough to receive the one-piece tunic. So now that begs a question, why would Peter use such a word? A word that seemingly denotes the idea of luck. Well, Peter's not a believer in luck at all. He does believe in the providence of God. That is the idea, the providence of God, that God is the God who plans and orchestrates all things according to his will. So the point of his using the verb is not to point to luck but the fact that the faith believers receive has nothing to do with themselves if you think about luck it has nothing you don't you can't do anything it's just by chance the idea being communicated here is that you have nothing to do with the fact that you've received this particular faith It reminds us that faith is not the result of personal effort. It is not the result of your skill. It is not because you're more worthy. It's not because you're better looking. It's not because you're stronger or have more money. You have nothing to do with the idea of this reception of faith. That faith is necessary to believe is a gift. If you believe today, you've received a gift from God, a grace gift. Grace has enabled you to believe. This verb is in the passive voice, which means, again, you didn't do it. It's something happening to you, not something that you have done. It's in that passive voice. It's graciously granted. It's bestowed upon those whom God, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. These are the elect that receive this faith. Right from the start of the letter, then, Peter, I believe, is intent on making sure his readers realize the very faith that they have exercised is received from God, unearned, unmerited. It is an extraordinary gift. And he starts with it. We start. With faith. There may be things that God does in order before that to give us faith, but the first thing we realize is faith. What is it that believers receive? Well, I've been alluding to that already. They receive faith, that's what it is, and what is faith? And in this context, we need to make sure we identify what this faith is. This is not the content or sum of Christian doctrine. We covered that in Jude chapter one verse, th- or Jude three, uh, where the, we talked about the faith that was once for all delivered or handed down to the saints. That was the sum and the content of the of the doctrine that's contained in the Word of God. That was uh, what Jude was referring to. But here in Second Peter chapter one verse one, faith speaks of something, in one sense, more subjective. It is saving faith. We don't know exactly how that works, but it works. It's that which God grants us to open our eyes to give us the power to believe. It has been given to you by God's grace. This is where the familiar words of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 again are helpful. For by grace, it starts with grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice that the faith to believe is the result of what, according to this verse? Grace, for by grace you have been saved. It is the grace of God. God graciously grants faith to those whom he has chosen that they will believe. And apart from this gracious gift of faith, no one would ever believe. We see the same idea in Philippians 1:29 where Paul wrote these words, for to you believers it has been granted, given, bestowed for Christ's sake, not only to believe, literally have faith in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Notice it's been granted to you to believe. You did not earn this. You did not merit it. It's from God and God alone. Faith is granted, faith is graciously given not based upon human merit, not by chance, but by God's wondrous and gracious choice, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's the, the idea here. But there's even more. Peter wants his readers to know even more about this faith. It's not just that they've received a faith. It is a faith of the same kind as ours, Oh, blessed thought, to consider what is Peter getting at here, and I love the picture he's painting. The words same kind speaks literally of being equal in rank, equal in position, equal in honor and prestige. Beloved, saving faith saves all who believe equally. That's what Peter is getting at here. There's no such thing as one person in this room being more saved than another. There's no such thing in this room as one person being less saved than another. It's kind of like being pregnant. You either are or you're not. You're either saved or you're not. And Peter says this is the same kind of faith. It's it goes across the table. When it comes to saving faith, there, there are no first-class citizens and second-class citizens. Some might be tempted to think that Peter had received a, an extraordinary, a spectacular faith. I mean, look at what Peter did. Peter, there at the, at the beginning of the church, and he gave the, the very first sermon of the church, and he saw 3,000 souls come to the Lord. I mean, who gets to do that? That must be extraordinary faith. And Peter says, no. The same faith that saved me saves you. And that's what he's seeking to get to communicate here. There's no ordinary Christian when it comes to saving faith. It's all extraordinary. To be sure, Peter walked with Jesus in the flesh. We have not. Peter had face-to-face conversations with Jesus in the flesh. We have not. Peter saw Jesus with his own eyes, and he touched Jesus with his own hands, and we have not. However, according to Peter himself, there is nothing more special about his faith as opposed to the faith of anyone who has trusted in Christ as his Lord and Savior. Blessed thought. The same faith that saved Peter is the same faith that saves all who believed. And so what are we noticing when we say look at all the things that Peter did that had, did that have anything to do with his faith per se not saving faith we all have different experiences as Peter's life can attest to I don't know how many of you've walked on water I've tried it doesn't work for me at least is that an issue of my faith being different no it's all the same faith that saves And while we have not seen Jesus as Peter has, yet we love him and we believe in him. Peter does not want his readers to think that there was anything more special about his faith than the faith that they had experienced as well. In Christ, we are all one. In Christ, we are a family. In Christ, we are brothers and sisters with equal shares in the inheritance of heaven. This is the true meaning of what Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28 when he wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he saying in context? This speaks of our salvific standing before God. Believing Jews are no more saved than believing Gentiles. Believing slaves are no more saved than believing free men. And believing men are no more saved than believing women. We are all saved people in Christ. And on a side note, let me remind you that this verse is not about the roles of men and women in the church. While we are all equally saved in Christ, Christ does have specific roles and functions for men and women in the family, in the church, and even in society. And sadly, such truths have been increasingly ignored to the detriment of what? Of the family, the church, and our society. But that's another message. All believers possess the same faith. They all believe the same things that Peter believed and as the apostles taught. Peter speaks of this a bit in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, when he wrote this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Can you believe that Peter, who saw all these wondrous things, says this about those who had not seen him? You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory because you know. The same expectation that Peter has of salvation is what you have of salvation because of Christ. Peter is writing to scattered believers who had never seen Jesus in the flesh as he had. And yet, Peter could say that they loved him and believed in him even as he himself had. Beloved, there is no lost blessing because we have not seen Jesus with our own eyes touched him with our own hands. We will see him with our own eyes. And we will touch him with our own hands. But there is no lost blessing. In fact, the Lord Jesus says that there's something about the experience, not of faith, but of the experience of those who have not seen Christ yet that is even greater than Peter's experience. You get that? Well, where do we find that? Remember when Thomas was finally able to see and touch the scars of Jesus? You remember what he said in John 20, 28? He exclaimed, My Lord and my God. He had come face to face with the gloriously resurrected Christ, and he was overwhelmed by his authority, and he called him Lord, and he was overwhelmed with his deity calling him God. (coughs) But do you remember what Jesus said immediately after those words? Well, if you don't, you're about to hear them anyway. Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed, happy to the uttermost, are those who did not see and yet believed. Is that you? Do you rejoice that you have the same faith as Peter? But even having the same faith of Peter, you say, well, look at all the things he experienced. But Peter understands and Thomas understands that there's a blessing that we have today that they did not. But it all stems from the same faith in the same Lord and the same God. Our experience of Jesus is different from that of Peter or Thomas. And Jesus said that our experience is a blessing, but the faith that saved Peter and Thomas, saved the apostles, is the same faith that saves us today. So then, the faith that every believer possesses has been received apart from human effort and is of the same kind as that which saves every other believer, but to drive home the gracious divine origin of faith, Peter informs his readers that this saving faith is the result of or by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. The phrase, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, carries with it a couple of ideas. First, in the immediate context, I believe Peter is actually Speaking of righteousness in terms of what we might call justice or equality. The reason why all believers have the same kind of faith is because Jesus justly, rightly distributes that saving faith to everyone in an equal fashion. So that's part of the idea here. He's giving them an equal measure, a just measure, the just right measure of faith. No one's lacking God, or Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe this one's not quite as good. I'm going to hold a little bit of this saving faith back. That's not righteous. This is what Peter is noting. We are not to look upon our other brothers and sisters in Christ and think that Christ loved them more, and somehow he saved them more or saved them better. No, Christ is just, and since saving faith can only be fully Saving, all who believe are guaranteed an equal or just proportion of saving faith. But second, in addition to that, Christ being just in the distribu- distribution of saving faith among his chosen, Peter is stressing the truth that the only thing That is actually merited. Remember, this is a received faith. You had nothing to do with it. So now the question might be, well, where did it come from? How did I happen to come across it? What what is it that has earned this for me since I haven't earned it myself? And so the only thing that has merited the distribution of faith to anyone is the righteousness of Christ. He alone has earned it if, if you put it in that lang- language. The word righteousness then speaks of the rightness or the goodness or the perfection of Christ in all of his conduct and all of his character. I love 1 John 2 1. Some of you know it well. It, it is a reference to Jesus Christ the righteous. And he, uh, it says, and uh, he is the propitiation for our sin and not for our uh, sin only. Uh, Now I've totally lost it. It's somewhere out there. Uh, It says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, Here, the the beloved is a reference to the imputed righteousness of Christ. What does impute mean? The idea of imputing means to charge or to credit to one's account. How is it that the sinner, who is ultimately God's enemy, by his own choice, you and I are enemies by choice, too, Uh, against God, who deserve nothing from God, now receive an equal measure of saving faith and the power to believe that, that I am a sinner and that Christ is a righteous, perfect Savior. Well, according to Peter, we receive the power to believe. By the rightness of Christ being credited to us so that God does not see now our sinfulness, but rather he sees the rightness, the righteous blood of Christ that has paid for our sin, paying all of it. He sees Christ's perfections. And I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. And let me just read that for you. He says that in Christ you have been made Complete. You lack nothing because of Christ. You have faith because of Christ. You have salvation because of Christ. You receive more empowering grace because of Christ. You lack nothing. This is all accomplished by the righteousness of Christ as opposed to anything you or I could do. Here then is the grace of God that leads to godliness. Your faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God obtained for you by the righteous efforts of Jesus Christ. It has been received by you by God's grace, a faith that reminds you that you are God's workmanship, a faith that reminds you that you are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared for you to live in in advance that you might reflect that righteousness of Christ. This is God's enabling grace, granting us a faith that believes in Christ, a faith that works for Christ, and a pursuit of the righteousness of Christ in our lives. Not in order that we would be saved, because that's already been taken care of, but we do these things because we are saved. How do we know, how do we measure, how do we grow in grace? How do we measure if we're growing? We come back to, what are you doing for Christ the saved desire to reflect the righteousness of Christ. They do so even as the moon reflects the glory of the sun. I ask, do you, do you long to demonstrate the reality of your faith in Christ by reflecting the righteousness of Christ in your life? This is what saving faith produces. This is what Peter will point out throughout the rest of this book, this chapter in this book. The apostle Paul speaks of his desire to look to nothing but, but to the obtaining of a right standing with God, not of anything that he had done, but noting what God had offered him in Christ. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. These are good words, right? Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of the false circumcision. Beware of false teachers, he's saying. Of those who say, ultimately, let me simplify it for you, we believe it is Christ alone who saves. There are others, not just in Paul's day and Peter's day, very much alive today in northwest Arkansas and in the United States and throughout the world, that say, no, it's Christ plus something. And Paul says, beware of saying, I'm going to contribute something, some righteousness to my salvation. That's not saving faith. Saving faith says, I trust nothing but the righteousness of Christ. And So Paul is all over this. He goes on in verse 3, for we are the true circumcision, the set apart ones, we who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in what? In the flesh. I'm tired of my flesh. The older I get, the more tired of my flesh I become. And Paul says, we will not put confidence in the flesh. But then Paul does something kind of interesting in verse 4. He says, let's just imagine for a moment that if there is someone who could possibly just By chance, be righteous enough. I would be that man. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Why, Paul? Well, I circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. I'm of the nation of Israel, the chosen people, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law. I'm blameless. You want to put confidence in the flesh. Can you, can you even live up to what I've done? Paul might be saying here. And after playing with that in verse 7, he says, but whatever things were gained to me all those good things those things i've counted as loss for the sake of christ what have you counted as loss for the sake of christ more than that, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, literally, folks, bird dung. Every good thing that I might have done, every accolade, every achievement, everything that everybody has praised me for, I count it like bird droppings. Why? Because otherwise I can't gain Christ because I'm trying to add something to which there's nothing to add to and I'm simply defiling that. Verse 9, and may be found in him, here it is folks, not having a righteousness of my own derived by the keeping of some law but that which is, what is he saying here? Through faith, the same kind of faith as Peter's. I want a righteousness that is obtained through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from where? God, not of my own doing. And then he says it again on the basis of faith. You cannot have righteousness of your own. You must believe that Christ has provided your full righteousness for you that is the gift of faith true Christianity glories in Christ true Christianity points to Christ true Christianity leans on Christ and it desires nothing but Christ and his righteousness and so we ask what do you glory in what is it that captivates your heart what is it that your life points to I don't know if this is fair to say. I, I, I say I got it easy. You know, I walk into a, a room of people who don't know me and they'll ask, you know, uh, well, what do you do, Ed? I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, I'm pointing to God. I've got it easy. That doesn't mean I'm pointing people to God, but it's a good start, right? So, you know, when people ask you what you do, Maybe you should start with, I read my Bible and pray. No, I meant what do you do for a living? That's what I mean. I read my Bible and pray. I pay my bills by working for J.B. Hunt or Sam's or whatever it might be, but, but what I do is I live for Christ. What is your greatest desire? I pray that it be Christ and Christ alone because that's what, Peter is addressing a faith that is fixated on the savior. Well, the faith to believe that the righteousness of God, of righteousness of Christ is necessary and sufficient to save and to sanctify comes from God. We've noted this already. This is Peter's thrust in these words. Yet we have not even come to the bottom of the well of which Peter is giving these Theological statements that ought to blow our mind. Notice next, and we're still in the first verse, that Peter tells us the source of this received faith and the provided righteousness is coming from where? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, pause. I've always preached from this pulpit. (laughs) If the Bible says uh, something one time, you better listen to it, right? Because it's the Word of God. Says it twice. Pay attention. Jesus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you. Says it three times. Really pay attention. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But what do we do with Peter, who in his first sentence, okay, second sentence, uses the phrase, well, no, it's two sentences here, uses the phrase Jesus Christ twice. Who's he pointing to? What is the great desire of Peter? Don't look at me. Look at Christ. We have the same faith. Don't get fixated on what I've accomplished. Look at what Christ has accomplished. Two times in one verse for us, he refers to the Savior as Jesus Christ. This is the second time he's used this dual title of Jesus Christ. Peter's consumed by Christ But what captures our attention here is now how Peter identifies Jesus Christ. Notice the modifiers. Jesus Christ is described as our God and our Savior. Peter is intent on confirming for his readers the Spirit of God wants us to know the deity of Jesus Christ. To be sure, Jesus is his earthly name, a name that means the Lord saves. To be sure, he uses the term Christ to speak of his divine title and and position as God's anointed and chosen one. But just in case some of us have failed to grasp the wonder of all this, Peter puts the proverbial nail in the coffin to say, I want to make sure you've got this down. And he states that this one is both God and Savior. Now, for us, we're like, okay, well, we know Jesus is God. You know, how many of you have ever had an, a, 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 an apologetic moment when somebody will say to you, well, the Bible never refers to Jesus as God, you know, and you have to go through all of these verses. And I, I don't know, there, there's so many like this one. There's no way to get around the construction of the Greek. It speaks of Jesus Christ in these terms of being God and Savior. He's truly God and truly man. He is fully God and fully man. Here is Paul's expression of the same idea in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 10. Follow along. Therefore, as you have received—that's a different word for received there, by the way. That's not the one in our text. That—that has that the idea that you've taken up by association. You've chosen to to be a part of this. Uh, so therefore, as you have received, taken up your association, uh, uh, Jesus Christ with Jesus Christ the Lord. So walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and. And overflowing with gratitude, verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Here, Peter's pointing to Christ, or Paul's pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ. And in case you didn't get it, now look what he says in verse nine: For in Him, who's the Him, Christ Jesus, the Lord, all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of Godhead. Everything that makes God, God, is found in this one in bodily form. Now, this is where you scratch your head a little bit. How on earth did God cram himself into, how on earth, literally, uh, did he cram himself into a body? But he did. The miracle of the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation, God in the flesh. This is our Savior and our God. And in him, as I read before, in this one Christ, the Lord, who has the fullness of deity, you have been made utterly, sufficiently complete. You're full. Behold our God. Behold the Lord Jesus Christ who is the source of our faith by which we have been saved, who grants faith to sinners on the basis of his righteousness, which he bestows upon those who believe. And I ask, have you believed? Have you experienced the grace of God who empowers saving faith and causes a desire to live for Christ? How would I know that, Pastor? Do you desire to live for Christ? Are you tired of yourself? Are you sick of yourself? Do you see yourself as a sinner that needs to be saved? We have been graciously granted a faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. The faith not only causes us to believe the truth about Christ, it affects our behavior so that we will pursue the life of Christ. So the first gracious gift that leads to godliness is faith. You cannot go any further until you have faith. But there is one more gift that I'd have us consider quickly, and that is the gift of grace and peace through the knowledge of Christ. He says in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Even by a casual reading, it's clear that Peter desires his readers to experience grace. All that they can about Christ. It's my desire to experience more and more of Christ. It's my prayer and desire for you, this congregation, to experience more of Christ than you have already. Do you think there's enough of Christ for you to delight even more than you have already? That we can be Baptists and say Amen. Well, that wasn't very Baptist like, but it's okay. In the context of this whole letter, Peter's greeting is simply a reminder that believers need not only faith, that's where we started, but they need grace and peace, the grace and peace of God. And they need it abundantly if they're going to live their life according to godliness. So now we see this grace is going to be a little bit different than than that grace that brings uh, salvific uh, faith, this salvific faith. It's going to be something that empowers us to do what God wants us to. To do So we're going to examine that. Without the grace and peace of God, our labors will be in vain. It's like Psalm 127, verse t- uh, 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor do so in vain. Let us consider then grace, peace, and the knowledge of God. First of all, the grace of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you do know something about the grace of God. You've experienced it at a certain level. If uh, um, It is through our Lord Jesus Christ that we have, according to Romans 5.2, obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So faith and grace, they work together. Apart from the grace of God, we have no standing before him. Apart from the grace of God, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. Apart from the grace of God, our future is, according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Woohoo! But, but the grace of God has been poured out to overflowing upon us. In Ephesians 2.8, we've read it already, the, for by grace you have been saved through faith. In Titus 2.11, we read, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. And in John 1.16 we read, "For For of his fullness, of Christ's fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Believers are a people of grace, knowing that the grace of God has come to us not only to save us, but where Peter's going to go with this is that grace doesn't simply save, it sanctifies it will work in your life to bring about Christ-likeness. We are to know that the grace of God has come to save and to empower us to live for him. Well, likewise, every believer in Christ knows something of the peace of God. If you are truly saved, you know something of the peace of God. The word peace is fundamentally a code word, if I could say it this way, for the entirety of what Jesus has accomplished for us who were enemies of God, at war with God, in order to secure for them, listen, salvation, pardon, and peace. What is peace? Peace is the reality of our well-being that comes as a result of knowing we've been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Peace is not just a feeling. Peace is the reality. It is knowing of my standing before God because of Christ. It is because of Jesus that we have and can live in peace with God. Again, before Christ, we were at enmity, the scripture says. We were at odds. We were butting heads in opposition with God. But now, because of Christ, we have peace. This wholesome well-being and position that we must remember was not bought at a price that we paid but bought by the blood of Christ. And so we read in Romans 5.10, listen to the words, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We have life now because of what Christ has done. We have peace with God. Now, while all of this is true, I want to submit to you that Peter's not so concerned about your past or about the reader's past. He's rather concerned about our present and future. How do we know that? He desires believers to experience more of the grace of God that enables them to live for him. He desires believers to experience more of the peace of God that reminds them of their standing with God because of Christ. Beloved, I submit to you if we were to grow in godliness, We must grow in our understanding and practice of living in light of God's grace and peace. Even as water and sunlight are necessary for a plant to grow, so believers need to plenty of grace and peace if we are to grow in Christ. If you get robbed of enabling grace, you will not grow. If you get robbed of peace and your your understanding of, of what has been accomplished for you by Christ, you will not grow. Let us never consider grace and peace as past, over and done events in our walk with Christ. Even as God has given us grace and peace in the past, we need grace and peace in our present and and for our future. Ultimately, this is what Peter is driving at, that grace and peace may abound to believers both now and forever. John Newton, who you know was the slave trader, Churn's saint captured this idea very well when he pinned the words in his hymn, Amazing Grace. Listen to what he said. If you thought of it this way, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, past grace, and grace will what? Lead me home." We need to grow in grace." This is to be the testimony of God's saints. God saves by his grace. God keeps us by his grace. God preserves us for our future by his grace. Such a truth enables us to grow in godliness because we know it's all of God. Well, how are such grace and peace to be realized brings us to point C. How are they to be multiplied and abound in our lives? There's but one means. It's through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let me say this very clearly. Apart from a true, intimate, detailed, and growing knowledge of Christ, you cannot grow in the experience of grace and peace. Do you feel troubled continually, believer? Perhaps you have not spent enough time knowing Christ. Have you felt unable to serve Christ as you ought? It may be that you are not spending enough time knowing Christ. The word for knowledge in our text, and I know this is very fun. Well, I got it written up there for you, is epignosis. It's just fun to say. The word gnosis means knowledge. Usually it speaks of an intimate or detailed knowledge. It's about knowing somebody and knowing them intimately. The epignosis is gnosis on steroids. It has the prefix epi in front of it, which means upon or over, above. So epigenosis means knowledge upon knowledge and more and more knowledge to know even more intimately than you already have. So you might know something intimately, but now it's like we're going to really know this intimately. Mary Watkins and my wife, Laura, are friends. They talk together. They talk pray together, they study God's word together, there are many things, many details Mary knows about Laura, and I would say that Mary has a gnosis, she has a knowledge of Laura, but I, being married to Laura, her husband, having having had many more years of experience with Laura, I have not only a gnosis, I have an epigenosis. I have a more intimate knowledge. I have a, a deeper understanding. I have this most detailed and over-the-top knowledge of my wife. And Peter says that enabling grace and soul-encouraging peace are found in the deepest, most profound, and abundant of details concerning God and of Jesus. Do you want to serve Christ better? Do you want to experience peace more richly? Then dig deeper into your understanding of God and of Jesus Christ. That's what's being driven here. Peter's aim in this letter is to inspire a pursuit of the knowledge of God and of Jesus so that enabling grace and divine peace may cause them to live more godly lives. And strengthen them to stand firm against the increasing false teaching and false living that surrounds them. Beloved, we are being surrounded like never before in a sea of false teachings and false understandings and godless ways. And people in the church are adopting it. And you know why? Because they don't know Christ. If we want to stand firm in this culture, we better get on our knees and pray, God, help me know you more. And he will grant the grace and the peace to do that. Peter knows all of this is acquired through this increasing in the knowledge of Christ. So let me ask you, are you growing in your intimate knowledge of Christ? Are you adding knowledge upon knowledge I fear sometimes that we get to places, we call them plateaus. We go in our Christian walk and then we plateau, right? What are those plateaus? They are when we have failed to go more deeply in our understanding of who Christ is. And that's when we're susceptible to feeling like I can't serve Christ as I ought because you're not experiencing more grace. And that's when you start perhaps doubting what has God done for me. Do I really have a standing with him because you've been robbed of your peace? We do not desire that. The story is told of George Mueller, the great man of prayer, who was passing across the Atlantic Ocean from England to Canada in order to speak in a place in Quebec. The trip was extremely slow because of the dense fog on the ocean on this particular journey. Mueller informed the captain, calling him aside and said, I I need to remind you that I need to be in Quebec by Saturday afternoon in order to speak. Well, the captain looked at him very befuddled and puzzled and informed him, It's impossible. Do you not see how dense the fog is? Mueller said to him, No. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls my every circumstance of life. I have never broken an engagement in 57 years. Let us go down to the chart room and pray. Captain followed him to the chart room. Mueller got down on his knees and he offered up a prayer. Then the captain, feeling obligated to pray something, was about to open his mouth when Mueller put out his hand on the captain's shoulder and said, as you do not believe God will answer, and as I believe he has, there's no need for you to pray about it. Then Mueller said, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years, and there has never been a single day when I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will find that the fog has gone and opened the door and the fog had lifted and Mueller made his appointment in Quebec. What was it that informed such a faith to experience such grace and peace? It was an intimate knowledge of walking with God for 57 years and he knew his God so intimately he knew what he could ask for and it would be Some of you would do well to read of the life of George Mueller. Let me give you one more as we wrap this up. Some of you are familiar with a man by the name of Polycarp. I don't know why we don't have more little Polycarps running around. It's a great name. He's a great man. Polycarp was a man who lived in the first and second centuries and was a disciple of John, uh, the apostle John himself. Christianity in his day was increasingly persecuted and eventually Polycarp found himself standing before the authorities there in Smyrna in Asia Minor and they ordered him to renounce and curse Christ. His response was inspiring. He said, quote, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me, unquote. The judge continued to threaten to burn him at the stake, and Polycarp told them, uh, all of the authorities, that the fire would only last but for a moment, but that eternal fire would never go out. Having heard enough from him, the authorities tied him up to the stake and lit the fire. He looked up to heaven and he prayed, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. What is it that enabled Polycarp to die so well for Christ? I say to you, he told us. He walked with Christ for 86 years. He had an intimate knowledge of Christ because of that, because it led him to cultivate and experience enabling grace and divine peace in his life. Beloved, the gift of grace and the gift of peace is yours, and it may be multiplied to you, but you need to be more intimate with Christ. The fruit of grace and peace comes from the knowledge of God. As we close, let me remind you that our God is gracious, Our God is generous beyond measure. Our God is ready to supply every need you have to know him. And it begins by faith in what he has accomplished for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus himself bore your sin and your shame, took upon himself the wrath that you deserved, dying in your place, taking that guilt to the tomb, being raised after three days, never to die again and to offer you, if you will believe, the same hope of the same resurrection power? Have you received a faith of the same kind as Peter? Have you received a faith that's the same kind as ours in this room? Are you digging deep into God's word so that you may know him more intimately and thus experience more and more of his enabling grace and divine peace? You have but to look to Christ I say don't just look though, cry to Christ, pray to Christ to be saved, and he will deliver you and fill you with the knowledge of himself. I love what Jesus said, this is a so loved verse of mine, John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, this is your life, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I want to know him intimately do you want to know him more intimately pray for the grace that enablement to have that knowledge so that you will experience more of the grace and more of the peace dear believers do not ever regard your faith as being second class or second rate the same faith that saves peter saved peter saves you the same gracious power and realization of being at peace with god that worked in peter works in you The only thing that hinders us from doing great things for God is failing to remember just how great our God is. A greatness that was demonstrated when he saved us, filled us with his spirit, and calls us to delightfully obey him by grace. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the deep truths that have been communicated to us through your servant Peter. We thank you that we can consider them, we can chew on them, we can come to some decisions in our life that remind us we need resolve, resolve to be more intimate with Christ, to spend more time fleshing out what we have from the word of God, to know about you, about Christ, about our lives, so that we might experience more grace, more peace, that we might obey you all the better. Father God, we pray that you will accomplish your work in and through us as we remember these wonderful truths. May they impact the way we live for you, we ask in Jesus' name.